The next generation of family history is here. Storied is taking family history to new and exciting places with AI, storied books, and more. With billions of historical records and exclusive newspaper publications, you can build and expand your family tree with ease. Collaborating with your family has never been easier or more affordable. Don't let your family's legacy go untold. Preserve these memories in a beautiful, interactive format that will be cherished for generations. Turn your family's journey into a stunning storied book, a keepsake to pass down to your children and grandchildren. Visit Storied today and get started for free. That's storied, S-T-O-R-I-E-D dot com. Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the podcast from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm Andrew Cook, editor of Family Tree Magazine, filling in for Lisa Louise Cook. Now that it's March, our thoughts turn to St. Patrick's Day and Irish ancestry. In this episode, we're talking about how to overcome common brick walls in Irish genealogy research. I'll be interviewing author and genealogist Eliza Watson, who's written an article on that subject for the latest issue of Family Tree Magazine. Even if you don't have ancestors from the Emerald Isle, I hope you'll find our conversation about brick wall busting techniques like reverse genealogy and investigating off the beaten path records to be helpful. We'll also hear from Kendall Hewlett, CEO of our sponsors Storied. He'll talk about what sets Storied apart from other family tree builders and the special offer they have for Rootstech 2024. As always, we have a lot to get to. Let's dive in. I am here with Eliza Watson. She is a USA Today bestselling author and genealogist. Her book is Genealogy Tips and Quips, and she has an article in the upcoming March-April 2024 issue of Family Tree Magazine called May the Road Rise to Meet You. Eliza, welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It is wonderful to be here. I'm excited to be able to provide a few tips about breaking down your Irish brick walls. You know, when you approached us, With this article idea, I thought, what a great way of talking about Irish research because Ireland has such a reputation for being a particularly difficult place to research your ancestors. So is that reputation warranted? And if so, why? Yes, I would say a person needs to have a wee bit more perseverance and creativity when researching Ireland versus countries like Scotland and England, where historical record collections are more complete and go way back. Uh, Sadly, many of Ireland's records were destroyed by fires or government orders throughout the years. Uh, The most devastating loss occurred in 1922 in an explosion at the Public Records Office in Dublin uh, during the Irish Civil War. This included all existing pre-1901 censuses, except for a few fragments. But rather than mourning the loss of those records, I always tell people a researcher needs to focus on what survived. The 1901 census could include people born um, back in the early 1800s. Civil registration records survive, and they began in 1864, recording births, marriages, and deaths, and uh, church records, many of which date back uh, from the early 1800s. Now, half of the Church of Ireland, which are the Protestant records, were lost in that 1922 explosion, unfortunately. However, all Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist records uh, weren't housed at the public records office. One thing to remember is uh, baptismal and marriage records don't merely provide parents and children's names, but usually the sponsors and witnesses uh, were likely family members. 
So that can help piece together the family tree. Availability of church records really varies widely, uh, depending not only on the county, but the parishes within it. Like County Wicklow, one parish may have records beginning in 1868, then others like Wicklow Parish date back to 1747. If your ancestors were from Waterford, you are really in luck. Uh, Many of the parishes in that county have records back to the early to mid-1700s, even a few 1600s for the Church of Ireland records. And Wexford Parish in Wexford uh, County dates back to 1686. Now, you need to keep in mind, um, any parish records may have gaps in them. Um, The records, for example, in my coffee ancestors parish in Westmeath began in 1806, yet I managed to trace the line back to 1705 thanks to church records, gravestones, and several kind Irish locals, including a newfound daily rally. So I think it's important when you start your research to know what records are available in the county you're researching. Uh, Family Search has a wiki page for each county, and genealogist John Grenham's website is an incredible source for this. I really like what you said about um, you have to know what records are available and not focus on what's lost, but focused on you know what's available. And because it's not so doom and gloom, yes. <laughs> in that there are still things to to learn about your ancestor in their particular time and place oh, if absolutely. you know where to look. Yes, you just need to, yes, focus on the availability in your specific county and get creative. I've done some creative things. <laughs> sure, yeah. And so you mentioned record loss and you mentioned gaps in records. Uh, what are some other common brick walls that people face when looking for their Irish ancestors? I would say common first and last names can easily cause brick walls. And in a minute, I'm going to talk about the using the family naming pattern to help solve mm-hmm. research challenges. Uh, Common place names definitely can pose a problem. I was once researching Balrath, County Westmeath, and I went back to continue my research and realized I was in Balrath, Meath. It turned out there are nine Balraths, and they're all located in counties Meath and Westmeath. (laughs) Now, that's not uh, as many as somewhere like Nacro, which doesn't sound like a common name, but there are 64 Nacros in Ireland. So when you think about it, family folklore might say or claim that an ancestor is from Nacro. And somewhere along the way, a person looks up Nacro and finds the first one located in County Cabin and thinks, that's it, I found Nacro. However, the ancestor actually came from Nacro and Cork. So if you hit a brick wall, look for other locations with the same place names Mm -hmm. that you're researching. Um, Again, John Grenham's site is excellent for this. He will tell you the different locations um, for each one of uh, the place names, what counties they might be in. And I also just want to mention, too, that when you encounter a brick wall, it's so important to ask yourself, did I build this brick wall? Mm. Um, I think new researchers especially often make the mistake of not doing enough research in the U.S., Australia, or wherever, whatever country their ancestors immigrated to before anxiously searching the 32 counties in Ireland for a Patrick Kelly. So find every bit of information on your immigrant ancestor in his new country before researching his homeland. Also, when uh, keep in mind when you're looking at a record that there's often a threat of truth, even in what appears to be wrong information. For example, I have my Watson ancestors' uh, U.S. death certificate and the death certificate for two of his siblings, and they all had different mothers' names. I had their Montreal baptismal records, so I knew Bridget Connolly was the mother of all three. 
One death record had the mother's name as Delia Greaves. I put this record aside thinking it didn't have any useful information. Later, I learned that Delia is a nickname for Bridget. (laughs) Seriously, I mean, never would have thought of that. So that's also a tip to make sure you know the possible nicknames for the names you're researching. So I took a better look at the surname and decided it was likely Guire and not Greaves. It was very poorly written. And then I recalled in an 1842 Montreal census, my ancestors lived next door to a Maguire family. So it's quite possible that Bridget's mother's maiden name was Guire, not Bridget. Bridget was a Connolly. So, and that's happened to me more than once that somebody has heard a surname, you know, that somewhere in history, the surname exists and they uh, give it to the wrong person, you know, and they remembered as being their grandmothers when actually, or being their mothers and actually it was their grandmothers. And, you know, especially like Bridget Connolly, she died when the kids were in their early teens. So, you know, they may not have remembered it uh, themselves either or have known her maiden name. Um, my last suggestion for breaking down a brick wall is don't take no for an answer. Um, even experts make mistakes and may overlook a faded document with hard to read handwriting or grossly misspelled surnames. So if a genealogist or experienced volunteer comes up empty, consider double checking his work. Several times my gut told me that record has to exist and it did. So just again, don't take no for an answer. Keep looking. <laughs> At least double check. I think what you said is very true, especially that sometimes people build their own brick wall and yes. it's sort of a lack of diligence sometimes or a lack mm-hmm. of creativity, like you said earlier, where, yeah. um, and that's something we've advocated before too. Let's make uh-huh. sure that this is an actual brick wall, that you're really missing a record or documentation and not just that something was lost in family lore, that you haven't fully explored a certain kind of resource. Definitely. Yeah. So you mentioned, and you talk in the article about Irish naming patterns. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and how they can be helpful, especially with common names? Yes, um, this has been very helpful in my research. Uh, Many families adhered to the traditional Irish naming pattern. Names had personal meanings and weren't randomly selected as they often are today. Um, So the firstborn son was named after the father's father, the second after the mother's father, the third after the father himself, the fourth after the father's oldest brother, and so on down his line of brothers. Daughters were named in this same pattern after the mother's side of the family. Now, it wasn't an exact science, and not everybody followed it. Um, Like if a husband and wife, both their fathers were named Patrick, they're not going to name two kids in a row Patrick. So the second child, you go on to the third um, child or the third uh, naming pattern, name in the naming pattern. Um, I first learned about the importance of the naming pattern when I came across three Catherines born to the same couple. The first two had died, and um, then they reused that name, and the third child, the third Catherine, uh, lived into adulthood. So it, the names were so important that they reused them. So this was something that I was not really familiar with. So this was absolutely a good a good thing to learn and help me a lot. Um, the naming pattern definitely can help you trace those hard-to-find women with married surnames. Uh, my ancestor, Eliza Butler McDonald, immigrated from County Wicklow to southwest Wisconsin. In the 1870 census, Eliza was married and had daughters Ellen, Mary Elizabeth, and Catherine in that order. Eliza had named her firstborn daughter after her mother, Eleanor, who died in Ireland. Eliza's neighbor was Mary Cavanaugh, and her firstborn daughter was Ellen, possibly Eliza's sister. 
I searched for other women in the area with daughters Ellen, Mary, Eliza, and Catherine. And I discovered a Catherine living a few towns away with four girls following the Butler family naming pattern. A bit of research and I confirmed Mary and Catherine were indeed Eliza's sisters. Also, I just want to mention this too, is that um, it can be important as to what names aren't in your family naming pattern. Um, like people will so often get overwhelmed and say, oh, what am I, my whole tree is full of Patrick's, Michael's and John's. And mm-hmm. I get it. Mine are too. <laughs> but uh, what about the absence of names, Hugh, Owen and Peter? When I was researching my Flannerys from uh, Castlebar County Mayo, they had immigrated to Southern Wisconsin. Um, Flannery is an uncommon name in Ireland. Uh, it pretty much exists in like four to five very Western counties of Ireland, including Mayo. Um, and it just so happened in uh, Southern Wisconsin, there was one other family that lived about 20 miles from my family. And my family, uh, first names common were James, John, and Thomas. Well, this family, it was Hugh, Owen, and Peter were a few yeah, of the common names, which yeah. you don't yeah. find in my family tree. And so it turned out they weren't related. So mm-hmm. it can help you weed out just the same as finding people mm-hmm. um, that share, you know, names in common with your family tree, weeding out uncommon names. Um, now you will have sometimes the maternal name enter the tree, like the mm-hmm. uh, wife's father may be a name that isn't common, you know, in your tree. Um, but you can pretty much tell if you're not going back generations with all of these same names. And I mean, none of them matched my Flannery's, you know, it can be a good, a good source to also weed out names that don't fit in your naming pattern. Uh, middle names. Uh, traditionally, the Irish didn't give their children middle names. My immigrant ancestors started using middle names to memorialize loved ones left behind in Ireland. It turned out that the children's middle names, like Lawrence, Richard, and Christopher, were my ancestors' uncles in Ireland. So there I just expanded the family tree mm-hmm. even more with names that, you know, were not common that I knew uh, in, the, in the family line. Um, a great place to learn middle names in the U.S. would be the World War One and Two draft cards. Yeah, definitely. And in the article, you mentioned that birth order becomes really important in learning in what order were these siblings born? Because that will help you match up. Okay, well, if you know you're looking at a second son, then maybe you search for uh, his grandfather, uh, a maternal grandfather of the same name, just Correct. following the pattern. So earlier you mentioned the 1901 and the 1911 censuses of Ireland survive in full, but that earlier counts uh, are not available. What can researchers use as substitutes for those earlier censuses? So one thing I just want to mention is don't forget about the surviving census fragments like I did. <laughs> Until a few years ago, I'd never researched a location in Ireland where the pre-1901 censuses were available. Then I was assisting a gentleman with research in County Antrim. Well, it turns out the largest collection of surviving 1851 census fragments pertain to Antrim. So I didn't even think of it you know, turning to the census at first because it had never been available um, for research, uh, you know, where I was doing it. So the 1851 census, in in addition to your general census information, uh, it listed absent family members. So this is 1851, right after the famine. So it would list where their current place of residence was, which may be America or Australia, um, and also family members who died since the last census. So when I was going through this 1851 census, I have to say it was really hard to remind myself, 
don't mourn the lost records, you know, but also yeah, don't forget right. about the fragments because uh -huh. if you do have a fragments available for the area you're researching, you know, definitely that would be your first source uh, to look at. Um, you may find early census information on pension forms. In 1908, Ireland uh, introduced the Old Age Pension Act for people over the age of 70. Um, so civil registration of births didn't begin until 1864. So many of those eligible for a pension had no way to prove their age if when they were born before 1864. As a result, many people sent forms to the public record office, which held the 1841 and 51 census records, containing proof that they were entitled to a pension. These forms contain uh, information such as their parents' names, other family members, birthplace, residence, stuff like that. It's a small collection, but a very important one. Uh, other census substitutes include like the Flax Report from 1796. Tithe Applotment Books, 1823 to 1837. Griffith's Valuation, 1847 to 64. Um, however, these only mention the head of households. Ones that list other family members potentially would be the Ireland Petty uh, Session Court Records, the National School List, Muster and Militia Rolls, and my favorite, gravestones. So mm. gravestones, um, you may find the transcriptions online. I'm starting to find more on sites like Find a Grave and other um, Ireland-only sites. Uh, but also local libraries often have uh, transcriptions done by a local historian or other people in the area, and then also a local historian. I mean, normally they probably have donated the transcriptions to the library, but it's also another source uh, to consider. Again, availability varies um, widely by county mm -hmm. uh, as far as um, if they're available within these collections. Yeah, it reminds me, we've covered the 1890 U.S. federal census pretty uh, thoroughly, <laughs> and it's a similar conversation where, yeah, most of it was lost, but there are some fragments, and there are other schedules that, you know, were taken along with the main population schedule that survived. So you don't have to totally throw out, you know, the whole count. Um, there are workarounds. And I know a lot of people, as you pointed out, Griffith's valuation and, and the Tide the Plotman books are sort of the most commonly recommended go-tos, but they do unfortunately only list the head of household. So, um, you know, sometimes you have to think more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And now a word from our sponsor. I'm here with Kendall Hewlett. He is the CEO of Storied. Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Andrew. Thank you. So, Kendall, can you tell me in your own words, what sets Storied apart from other websites where you can build a family tree? Yeah, I think there's a few things that are interesting about Storied. One of them is that uh, Storied uses graph technology, kind of like a social network. So you can actually add anyone to your family tree. You know, most trees are family oriented around parent and child relationships. Um, but in our tree system, you can add anyone like a friend, a pastor, a teacher, anyone who made an impact in your life, because we all define family differently. You can mm -hmm. even add a pet. And so that's a fun aspect of story that makes it a little bit different. The other thing is we're really an end-to-end -end family history platform. And what I mean by that is you can come to story, you can start a family tree, you can make discoveries through hints and all of our content, newspapers, all the kinds of cool things that we have. But um, you can also do storytelling on the platform. You can invite a group to share stories together. And ultimately, you can print that 
in a hardbound book, which is a really cool, like the other end of the end-to-end platform is that there's a physical, tangible output from all of the work that you've done that you can pass down to uh, your, your children, your grandchildren. And the book actually is really neat because it has QR codes mm. for each story. And you can scan those QR codes and that will actually pull up the digital version of the story where you can get more details and you could even listen to things like audio files that are associated with the story, maybe hear it told in the uh, original writer's own words and all kinds of things like that. So it's a really rich uh, platform from that perspective. Yeah. And one thing that struck me was that you could add all the different sorts of relationships that maybe get missed in other uh, platforms. You know, I have two cats, so I was very excited that I could add my pets to uh, my family tree and hey, add stories to your family, right? That's oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And what inspired you to build story? Yeah. So there was a New York Times article. It was a really seminal piece for me. And I think for a lot of the other people, the early, early people at story. Um, it was written by a guy named Bruce Feiler, and it was about some research done at Emory University. And the the gist of the research, if you had to boil it down, is that kids are more resilient if they know a lot about their family history. And, you know, how do kids learn about the family history? It's not the names, dates, and places on some tree. It's the stories, right? And the reason that I think stories make kids more resilient is they see the ups and downs and the arc of life, right? Like it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, a rags to riches story, a riches to rags story. Mm-hmm. And it helps you realize that, you know, you're part of a bigger thing, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you don't have to get so whipsawed by some of the things that happen in life because you know there are ups and there are downs and mm-hmm. all throughout that your family's persevered, right? Um, and so anyway, I, I think, for us, that was super inspirational, right? We have an opportunity to help people tell stories. It felt like there was a real gap in the family history marketplace because most of the products are really oriented around research, right? which is important. But I think the things that make the biggest difference are actually stories. Yeah. And I, I think about that next generation aspect a lot. I have a young daughter. So, you know, my research has taken on a new meaning because I want to pass this along to her someday too. Yeah, for sure. So as our listeners are hearing this right now, the Roots Text conference is going on in Salt Lake City. So can you tell us a little bit about what Storied has going on this week for the conference? Yeah. So first of all, we have a really awesome deal for Roots Tech. For just $99, you get access to Storied and Newspaper Archive, all of our newspapers, and one free Storied book, the hardbound mm-hmm. book as part of the deal for the conference. So just $99, you get all of that for a full year. So it's a pretty good deal. I mean, this is like the best deal. I don't know if I'll be able to authorize such a good deal uh, (laughs) next time, but man, this is a a good one. And we're also rolling out a bunch of new features and functionality. So we'll be supporting audio uh, Mm -hmm. and PDFs. Um, We have a really cool import feature from Family Search. So if you have a family tree on Family Search, you can pull it in and all of the memories that are on Family Search, you can pull in quickly and easily to jumpstart your storybook, which is really fun. Um, we're also uh, supporting recipes. Uh, mm-hmm. So family recipes is kind of a big deal and much talked about at Roots Tech. And we're excited that now you can produce your own family cookbook. 
um, with stories about each recipe, photos, and everything uh, compiled in a hardbound book. So anyway, lots of fun things that we're rolling out for RootSec that gives you a, a taste of a few of them. Wonderful. And we'll share a link to all of that in the show notes so our listeners can take advantage of that offer while it lasts. Well, thank you so much, Kendall, and we'll see you in Salt Lake City. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. You mentioned the Great Famine. Obviously, that's one of the seminal moments in Irish history, especially from sort of an Irish-American lens, and that drove a lot of people to, to emigrate from Ireland. What effect does the Great Famine have on research? Yeah, during the Great Famine, which was 1845 to 51, uh, approximately an estimated 1 million people died and two and a half uh, immigrated, scattering across the globe to the U.S., mm-hmm. Canada, Australia. Um, but before ending up in one of those faraway lands, um, your ancestor might have done what's called step migration mm-hmm. and merely sailed across the Irish Sea to England or Scotland. Uh, England's 1851 census recorded nearly a half million Irish-born people living there, uh, double the number in the 1841 census. Um, So also, besides England, look to Scotland. Petty session court records uh, are a very good source because crime was on the rise during and after the famine. People turned to petty crimes desperate to feed themselves and family. Some committed crimes to um, be imprisoned so they had food and shelter. It was so sad. Um, Or they entered the dreaded Irish workhouse, often called the famine house. Prior to the famine, workhouses were built in Ireland to help the poor. Um, By 1845, the beginning of the famine, there were 123 workhouses. Uh, In 1847, a workhouse that was built for 800 was accommodating 1,800 destitute people. Um, So they were fighting fighting to get a spot in these unsanitary places that had brutal conditions that provided like two pathetic meals a day in exchange for hard labor. And worst of all, the parents were separated from their children. So sadly, there's a good chance that you might find your ancestor in the workhouse and poor law records at some point during the famine. Yeah, it was, you know, obviously a tragic time. And um, I think it's always interesting and important to learn why your ancestors would have left their homeland. And the the, the Great Famine, I think, is um, one of the clearest examples of that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very, it was a very sad time, you know, and you just, you think about, you know, the things that we complain about right. nowadays compared to... Uh, back then i tell myself that when i'm when my flight's delayed six hours and i'm like okay it's gonna take me eight hours to get to chicago when i took my immigrant ancestor six to eight weeks on a coffin Mm -hmm. ship i mean it's like it's amazing they were definitely sturdy stock oh definitely and i think i've heard that the population of ireland hasn't fully recovered from the famine no it hasn't Yeah. It hasn't, you know, and they're still, they're worried right now about um, still so many people emigrating to get jobs, you know, mm-hmm. young people getting out of, uh, you know, the high school or, co- or university and uh, going to Australia or the U.S. I mean, it's so common to talk to people there who have children in Australia and the U.S. or Canada. Well, talking about moving across the Atlantic, obviously under very different circumstances, you advocate getting into your ancestors' community to do research. And I know for a lot of listeners and for myself, heritage travel is a bucket list item. So what tips do you have for traveling across the pond to Ireland? I would say my number one trip 
is, if at all possible, to find your family homestead uh, in advance. So Mm -hmm. that would be one of your top items to hopefully visit. Um, Griffith's Valuation is a good place to start with that. Um, That's how I found my one coffee, uh, my coffee's home, uh, because it has a map that it can actually help you pinpoint the location. And uh, if you can't find it on your own, there's genealogy and heritage companies in Ireland that will help you find it. Um, One of my most memorable moments in Ireland, it was in 2010, visiting my mom's great-grandfather Patrick Daly's family home in Kilbegan County, Westmeath. Uh, The deserted dwelling is still standing and has several of the outbuildings. Patrick immigrated in 1875, but his brother remained in Ireland and raised four daughters uh, in that two-bed, or not even a two-bedroom. It was a two-room cottage. The uh, last of his four daughters lived there until 1973. So a neighbor actually remembered this daughter, Agnes, and um, kind of a funny story, but he said that, yeah, he remembered Agnes. When he was young, his parents would always say, you better behave or I'm going to drop you off at Agnes Daly's. So <laughs> that kind of put the fear into him. So not a great memory for this guy, but we enjoyed hearing the story. So that's the other thing, you know, when you find these family homesteads, um, you know, it might not be that long ago that your last relation lived in the home and neighbors may remember the person. I mean, I'm sure this guy has other great stories, you know, too, that we could sit down and chat about. Another um, really neat thing I did on that same trip is uh, bef- I had the itinerary mapped out before we went and I went through and found surname pubs and restaurants for um, all of our uh, like flannerys and coffees, dailies. Uh, my cousin Lori Lynch was coming with us. So I found Lynch's and I thought, you know, how fun. And this was my second trip to Ireland. So I'm like, how fun to have our picture taken mm-hmm. in front of all of these surname uh, pubs and restaurants and to get a t-shirt or souvenir from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we quickly discovered that few of these establishments have surname souvenirs. Um, however, at one of our first stops, it was a Flannery restaurant in County Mayo, which was just south of Castle Bar, where my mom's Flannery's came from. The very lovely owner, um, she gave me a sweatshirt that was embroidered with a horse racing logo for Ballon Robe, County Mayo. Her brother raced horses there, um, and she refused to take money for it. So I gave her a nice tip, um, but that was... Our, our first picture was taken in front of that restaurant. Uh, we went to, Lin- my again, my cousin was Lori Lynch that was with us. And we went to a Lynch pub in Cork. Um, my cousin offered the bartender a crazy amount for of money for her logoed uh, polo shirt. Uh, but the woman said, unfortunately, she only had one other shirt. So she couldn't, she couldn't do it as much as she would like to have uh, taken the money. Um, but she gave Lori several logo lighters uh, with the oh, nice. logo on it. So, and I was taking Lori's picture. And Lori's a tall blonde um, woman, and I was taking her picture outside in front of the Lynch um, sign. And a patron was out there smoking, and he kind of sidled up to Lori and got into the picture. And he went inside, and then his buddy came out from inside with his beer and got his picture taken with Lori and everybody kind of took turns. I have pictures of her with about six different pub patrons. 
Um, so that was a very neat uh, souvenir. We went home with several unique souvenirs. Um, but the other thing about the soup, besides the souvenirs, is that, you know, the pubs are often known, owned by a person with that surname. Mm. Um, so they're happy to sit and chat with you, uh, even if it's not the same county that your mm. ancestor was from. But to chat about the Lynch or the coffee families. Um, and, you know, while you're there, buy a a local, a pint, um, just like yeah. the neighbors of your family homestead. You never know who you're going to meet in the pub and what information uh, they might have. So I always very much encourage uh, getting out and speaking to the locals. And I mean, they're very friendly and they love to chat. So mm-hmm. um, you definitely could could have some um, very good sources there in the locals. Yeah, I, I really loved the examples that you gave in the article of the sort of genealogy serendipity. You know what? conversation with this person led to this find and you would never have thought it, you know, oh, and right. you know, certainly if you, certainly if you only stuck to sort of the tourist attraction parts of Ireland, you wouldn't see that. And so you're getting a sense to the local flavor and the, the people, I think that's, that's so valuable and um, so enriching too. I, I think too, you know, another thing that helped me is my ancestors, a lot of them were from the Midlands. So County Meath and Westmeath, which of course don't have a lot of tours. So mm-hmm. when you're, you know, at a restaurant or something, people are curious, you know, uh, why are you here? What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Um, are you lost? Dublin is this way, you know, or so they're very curious when they hear your accent and want to know exactly where you're from and why you're in the area. And so I've been, you know, I mean, not even surname pubs. I was in a pub one time and the woman asked us, my mom and I, why, why exactly we were in the area. And we told her about our coffee surname. And she's like, Oh, she's like coffee sisters used to own the sweet shops across the street. Oh, too bad that, you know, they're no longer around mm-hmm. there deceased, but she's like, you need to be talking to Jimmy coffee up the road. So then she's sending us to Jimmy coffees, you know, who, uh-huh. you know, I never would have found without her giving me direction. Unfortunately, Jimmy wasn't home, but um, I left a note on his door, which I've also left many notes on doors and gravestones and other places throughout mm-hmm. Ireland to hopefully connect with somebody. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned earlier that you want to try to get that specific town, not just West Ireland or Dublin, where, you know, it's a big area and you, you really want to kind of drill down to the townland level. Um, yes. to, you know, really home in on. If at all possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're dealing with common surnames, you know, mm-hmm. Murray, Kelly, you know, any of those that are in the top 10. And I, I have to say, um, just a real quick note, my coffees, that's coffee is 156th most common surname in Ireland. So not common at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know of any that were still in the area. Uh, but once I started actually researching in that area and talking to people, like I just said, they would direct me to a coffee that they knew. So, you know, not being a common surname helped me. But there were still like three packets of coffees. I think Ross Common, Westmeath, and Cork were the most common place. And case in point, I was told when I started doing the research, we didn't know who the, our immigrant ancestor was. But supposedly mm. somebody knew the coffees came from County Cork. Mm-hmm. Well, about 300 miles from there in County Westmeath is where our coffees came from. So again, you have to take it, you know, when you're looking at these placings somewhere in history. Somebody probably said, well, there's a big, you know, coffee population in Cork. That must be where they're from. 
Yeah. And John Grenham's website has a place where you can research that, right? A surname. He yes. Has- mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And no, I was on there not that long ago because and I, I couldn't find it, but it's probably still on there. And I just wasn't looking in the right place. But another really good thing is he has first names on there, oh, not just surnames. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I was researching, who I think is my Scottish relative uh, that ended up in the military in Galway, which is where he had his child. So again, a tip, don't just look within the country where you think your mm-hmm. relation was born, because even though my Watson was uh, raised in Scotland, I think he was born in Galway. Mm. Um, so something, you know, important to keep in mind. Um, but Barbara is an uncommon name for a first name in Ireland. I mean, not common at all. And so I was like that. And I knew my ancestor's mother's name was Barbara. So Mm. that also got me to thinking, okay, this sounds more Scottish. Well, I put Barbara in to John Grenham's first name, um, site, uh, to search. And like all the Barbers were in Galway and Aran Islands in that area. Mm-hmm. And somebody told me somewhere along the way, and I'm trying to think exactly how this went, but that it was um, uh, fishermen that uh, fishermen believed uh, that the, for whatever reason, the name Barbara uh, was a name to protect them on the waters. And when you lived, you know, on the on the shores, I I don't know exactly if that was true, but it is interesting. Than mm-hmm. that area. Now, also, too, there was a big garrison, a big military garrison in that area. And so there were a lot of Scottish. So they mm-hmm. could also have brought the name Barbara uh, to that area, you know, of Ireland. And then once it gets into the family naming pattern, you know, it's a lot of, you know, Scottish and English military men married uh, Irish women. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it sort of goes back to the idea of step migration, where before your ancestors came to the United States or to Australia, maybe they went to. England first, or they went to Scotland first, and trying to think holistically right. about what that journey might have been like. And yeah, absolutely, Hope I think so. about that a lot with DNA too, because you know people want to take a test and say I'm, you know, whatever, fifteen percent Irish. Well, yeah, but there was a lot of kind of coming and going between different places, so it's not always so clear cut as people maybe want it to be sometimes. Yeah, especially between um, Scotland and you know Northern Ireland, that area, mm-hmm. there was a yeah. lot of back and forth. In your article, you talk a lot about researching not just your direct line ancestors, but also their siblings, their aunts and uncles, these collateral relatives, the clusters of people that they lived in, um, and to researching their descendants to figure out who these people were, where they ended up, and uh, this idea of reverse genealogy. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that and how it can help with Irish research? Yes, absolutely. Um, reverse genealogy really helped me break down my coffee brick wall. Um, I had several coffee brick walls, but it helped me break down one of them. Um, so again, you may not be able to find information you need on in your ancestors' records, but his siblings or their descendants mm-hmm. might prove very helpful. Uh, when my ancestor, Patrick Coffey, he was here in the U.S., and when his wife died, there were three people that attended her funeral and were mentioned in her obituary that were from Davenport, Iowa, one being a man, Richard Coffey, and then two women who, of course, were named by their husband's names, not even their first names. Um, But I was able to trace them, the three of them, back to a census in Davenport and discovered their father was Michael Coffey. He was born in Ireland uh, circa the time my Patrick was, or would have been. 
Um, so I traced Michael's children forward and found descendants. Uh, when I contacted them, nobody had heard of my Patrick, but they knew that their ancestor, Michael's birth location, uh, was a village in County Westmeath. I was able to find Michael's baptismal record, which was great because to this day, I still have not found Patrick's. Mm. Uh, Patrick quite likely, he was the firstborn, I believe, so he quite likely was born in his mother's townland um, because the women often went home, especially for the first child, um, to have their first child at uh, their parents' home to ha- you know have help and everything. Uh, but so again, I might still be beating my head against that brick wall if it wasn't for uh, tracing Patrick's sibling forward and finding this information from his relations. Um, so it's very important. Uh, mm. And also uh, another brick wall within my coffee line, um, I was able to break that down thanks to a daily relation who was completely unconnected from the coffees. Um, but it was a matter of I found her and we visited the homestead, the daily homestead mm. together, you know, in Kilbegan. But her mother-in-law worked with a coffee gentleman who knew about a graveyard that I never would have found on my own and um, gave us a tour of it on my one visit there. And that proved instrumental in breaking down. Well, really, that proved in, instrumental in solving the mystery. And I was able to connect my coffee line back to 1705. Wow. So yeah. again, you know, it's so important networking, especially, you know, because of the famine and so many families were separated that, you know, the ones that remained in Ireland, you know, may have a lot different and more information than what you have, you know, being descended from the one who did immigrate. So again, finding them just in pictures, I have gotten many mm-hmm. excellent photos of uh, Irish relations, you know, from these um, descendants of other siblings and whatnot in the family. So I just can't even emphasize enough how important reverse genealogy is when uh, researching in Ireland. Yeah. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about, well, we'll start now and work backward in time. But that sort of working backward and forward kind of uh, mm-hmm. alternatively can really, really uh, turn up some great finds, especially Absolutely. in places and times where it's hard. Yeah. And there, it, it, it's amazing how many people do not do the reverse genealogy. And that's why I always like mm-hmm. to emphasize that. Yeah, definitely. Well, Eliza, thank you so much for joining us today on the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Uh, you can find Eliza through her book, Genealogy Tips and Quips. And you can see her article, May the Road Rise to Meet You, in the March-April 2024 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Thank you so much, Eliza. Okay, Andrew, thank you. This was incredible. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. This is the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. You can find a web version of Eliza's article on overcoming Irish genealogy brick walls in this episode's show notes page, which you can find at familytreemagazine.com slash genealogy dash podcast. There, you'll also find a huge back catalog of past episodes full of topics that will help you in your genealogy research. When you stop by the website, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter. That's the perfect way to stay in touch with Family Tree Magazine and get all the latest and greatest genealogy news, plus the announcements of each and every new podcast episode. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.